welcome everyone back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which as many of you know, is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and geopolitics. Uh, SALT Talks are a series of digital interviews that we've been doing during this work from home period uh, to provide our audience a window into the minds of subject matter experts and to provide a platform for big important ideas the same way we do at our global SALT conferences. Uh, which some of you have attended in Las Vegas, Abu Dhabi, and Singapore. Uh, today, we're very excited to welcome Zach Carter to SALT Talks. And uh, Zach is a senior reporter at HuffPost, but uh, most topically today, and, and the impetus for him coming on the SALT Talk today, is that he's the author of a fantastic new book uh, called The Price of Peace, Money, Democracy, and the Life of John Maynard Keynes. Uh, in addition to being the author of that book, he's a frequent guest on television, and radio, and his work has appeared in the Washington Post, The New Republic, The Nation, and The American Prospect, among other outlets. He began his career at SNL Financial, which is now a division of S&P Global. Uh, he was uh, a banking reporter there during the uh, 2008 financial crisis, and he had a feature story called Swiped, uh, Banks, Merchants, and Why Washington Doesn't Work for You, which was included in the Columbia Journalism Review's compilation of best financial or business writing for 2012. Um, you know, Anthony got a hold of, of Zach's book and read it a couple weeks ago and reached out to Zach, who graciously, graciously agreed to join us. And I think we're in for a fascinating intellectual discussion today about uh, John Maynard Keynes, the ideas that, that he espoused and how you know, his life affects our lives today. Uh, so Zach, thanks so much for joining us. I'm going to turn it over to you and Anthony for the interview. All right. Well, Zach, I, I appreciate you being on with us. I mean, the, the great irony of this talk is uh, it was preceded by a great endorsement of your book by uh, Jerome Powell. Like he probably didn't exactly say it was your book, but he's basically espousing Keynesian economics for the last hour and a half on CNBC. And so I want to hold the book up because I know you've got it behind you, Zach, but uh, this is the book, uh, Money, Democracy, and the Life of John Maynard Keynes, The Price of Peace. Uh, Zach, is a fascinating book. I, I hope, uh, I guess for our listeners and viewers, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, you told me it took you four and a half years to write the book. Why did you want to write the book? And then we'll talk a little bit about uh, uh, Professor Keynes and how we are still living with his legacy. So as, as John uh, mentioned there, I, I used to be a banking reporter at a trade publication called SNL Financial that is now part of S&P Global. And I was there, uh, frankly, I was not terribly excited to have this job in 2006. I thought the idea of uh, being a journalist covering banking uh, from a place in central Virginia was not the most exciting job you could have. But uh, I learned an awful lot about how the financial system works over the course of that, uh, that, that uh, enterprise. And of course, in 2008, the financial system essentially collapsed. And in that moment, everything that I had been told about how markets were supposed to work, about how supply and demand was supposed to you know, reach an equilibrium, seemed to fall apart. And people who had been telling me that supply and demand would always reach a prosperous equilibrium started reaching for the government. For, for very large infusions of cash to save the financial system. And I, I, frankly, to be clear, I think if you had not saved the financial system in 2008, uh, we would not be living in the United States of America today. The, the, the collapse would have been absolutely catastrophic. But it was very clear to me that there was sort of an intellectual sea change that was underway at that moment. And people started talking about John Maynard Keynes, uh, you know, just sources that I would talk to on the phone. 
and these people did not talk about John Maynard Keynes a year, 18 months prior to the crash. Uh, and so I went and started reading John Maynard Keynes. As, a, as an undergraduate, I studied philosophy, I studied politics, I did not study economics. Uh, so I learned economics sort of on the job as a banking reporter from people in, in the financial system. Um, and, and frankly, I think that's a good way to learn economics because the financial practitioners, the people are actually doing it every day. Economists are sort of uh, one step removed from what's actually going on in the world. That can be a valuable sort of perspective, but particularly in the crash, watching the way people change their minds about about something. I mean, in politics, I've been covering politics for several years since, people almost never change their minds. But in, in the financial crisis, you could see people in the markets change their minds about the way they believe the world worked. And so I started reading John Maynard Keynes. And I, for the first book I tried to read was The General Theory of Employment, Interest, and Money, which uh, is a terrible, terrible book to read. It is just written like it's like a pretzel covered in thorns. It's just, it's awful. Um, and so I got a couple chapters in and I just said, I'm going to try something else. And I tried uh, the economic consequences of the piece. And that book is like, it's like reading, it's just like reading a big stick of butter. It's just beautiful. It's wonderful, wonderful read. It's much more consistent with Keynes's uh, broader body of work and his writing style than the general theory is. And I realized reading that book, there's a lot more going on here than just dollars and deficits and, and money and numbers. There's a whole social theory. There's a whole idea, not only of what a national economy is supposed to look like, but what international cooperation is supposed to look like. And economic policy wasn't this sort of like technical mathematical thing. It was the thing that was supposed to, it's supposed to like embolden and enable this broader social vision. And so I became totally obsessed with Keynes and, and the book is, uh, is the byproduct of that. Okay, so let, let's take people back for a second. I, and I, I, I don't wanna cut you off because I really want you to elaborate on all this, but I wanna give all of our viewers who may not be as familiar with John Maynard Keynes a, a brief synopsis. So he was a legendary economist uh, and he wrote about the Versailles Treaty, which you elaborate in the book. And he wrote that the wartime reparations that were being imposed upon the Germans were not sustainable, uh, unlikely to be paid back and would cause social and political unrest in Germany. And so that was a big hullabaloo in the West because they were trying to extract damages from the aggressor Germany in the First World War. But Keynes was really trying to point out that if you do that, you're gonna set them up for nationalism, you're gonna set them up for a specter of disassociation from that alliance that you're you're talking about. Of course, that happened, but in the ensuing years, uh, we were we were touched with the Great Depression. And you go into that, you can explain why that happened. Combination of bad monetary policy, a lot of what Leah Quad Ahmed said in the Lords of Finance. But there was John Maynard Keynes standing for the principle that the government needed to prime the pump, and the government needed to replace aggregate demand and deficits, frankly, were not going to be that big of a deal. As you, Stephanie Kelton, and others point out, uh, they have been sustainable for generations. They've been sustainable for thousands of years in our civilization. And so now I want to bring it back to you. It's John Maynard Keynes. He's living in the 1930, early 1930s, espousing these theories, uh, which we're using today. But go ahead. Well, just remember, he eventually comes to support deficit spending. But in 1919, 
when he's seen the Treaty of Versailles and, and been horrified by it, he's still a very conventional 19th century kind of economist. He thinks that they need to do widespread debt relief in order to allow markets to sort of work their magic, that, that supply and demand will come into equilibrium and there will be a prosperous sort of natural kind, kind of uh, out, outgrowth of, of the post-war world, but only if these, these terrible war debts and the reparations that are assigned to Germany at the end of the war are, are limited. He thinks these things are just, they're, they're just un, unpayable. So he's not, he's not this sort of revolutionary economic thinker at the beginning of his career. Um, and, and he makes his career in large part pursuing this particular social vision. He thinks there is this world of international harmony and cooperation I think it's I think it's largely kind of a, a you know a, a naive view of, of the way the late 19th and early 20th century international economies function but but it's a beautiful vision I mean he's talking about people exchanging ideas and culture uh, across different national boundaries and the trade and finances is sort of a vehicle for for uh, for cooperation growth and social harmony it's a way to eliminate war in particular um, and so he he loses that key political battle in 1919. Uh, he does not succeed in eliminating war debts or reparations from the, the Treaty of Versailles. And he basically loses every single political battle that he fights, it, particularly in Britain, from 1919 until about 1941. Uh, but he becomes, around 1929, enamored with this idea of deficit spending. He says, look, we have huge debts everywhere because the war debts aren't going away. Everybody's still in debt. From, from the war in 1929, but there are all of these problems that need to be solved. And so before he has this very sophisticated economic theory that he develops in the general theory in, in 1936, he just recognizes there's a political necessity for rebuilding to occur. Governments just have to start doing things because the private market is not doing anything. And if nobody does anything, the economy is not happening. It's not functioning. We, we talk about the Great Depression in the United States like something that sort of got kicked off in 1929, sometime after the, 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 the stock market crash. But in Britain, they were in a double-digit unemployment situation from 1919 all the way through to the Second World War. So for Keynes, this is just an astronomical political crisis. And they have these, you know, these, these enormous strikes that are happening in the streets in 1926. There's a general strike where basically all of the labor unions just unite and say, we're not going to work anymore. And that is devastating to Keynes. He's, he's very sort of politically conservative in that he's afraid of change. But a lot of his policy ideas, I think, end up being quite radical in that they're, they're new sort of ideas designed to facilitate that, that sort of conservative political goal that he has in mind, that, that goal of social stability. So, so eventually we get to the 30s and he starts talking about deficits sort of sort of by necessity like the, everybody's in debt and we've got to do something so let's let's go for it so let, let, let's let's talk a little bit about that conservatism that you're mentioning because as you point out in the book a lot of the conservative economists were ridiculing him uh you mentioned ludwig von mises and economic economica i believe was the publication mm -hmm. just lighting him up about these non-classical theories of economics and there are many conservatives that tune into these podcasts and uh, are listening and they have this uh, feeling, this sort of Adam Smith laissez-faire feeling, uh, except uh, it's a little bit like Mike Tyson's act, you know, uh, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face and then everybody goes hard left and starts massive deficit spending. So 
uh, I want you to put at ease the conservatives that are listening in on this uh, and explain to them why their theories are wrong and why John Maynard Keynes is right. Well, uh, both von Mises and Hayek had a much more, a much deeper understanding of economic history than John Maynard Keynes did. Uh, he did not study economics as, as a young man. He studied mathematics. Cambridge didn't have an economics program until 1903, I believe, and he graduated in 1902. So there were economics courses, but you couldn't you know, major in economics there. And so Hayek and von Mises have this much deeper and longer sort of knowledge about, about the economics profession. And I think to some extent this ends up hamstringing them when they get to the depression because the rules that are supposed to apply suddenly don't apply anymore. You, however you look at the Great Depression in the 1920s and the 1930s, at some point markets should have been able to clear whatever dumb decisions governments were making. Rational individuals maximizing their own you know, economic potential should have figured out a way for, for supply to reach equilibrium with demand and, and lead to uh, an equilibrium in which there was uh, sustained high employment. And that just did not happen in, in Britain. And so the, the thing about Keynes is he, he looks at economics from a more sort of philosophical perspective than I think Hayek and von Mises did. He was fundamentally a philosopher first, a social thinker first, and then an economist second. He's always using economics to try to pursue these other social goals. So I, I want to say to the conservatives here, like if you are upset with John Maynard Keynes because you think that he's pursuing social goals that you don't agree with, you are correct. That is in fact something that he was doing. Uh, but it is also the case that essentially every single government since, uh, since the Great Depression has pursued the ideas of John Maynard Keynes in some variety or other. Everyone runs big deficits when we get into a crisis. It always happens. Uh, even Ronald Reagan, after the, the big monetarist sort of recession under Paul Volcker in the early 1980s, started ramping up government spending for the military in order to try to win re-election in 1984. He eventually sacked uh, Paul Volcker in favor of, of Alan Greenspan in order to, to get some more help from the Fed, frankly, in a very traditionally Keynesian way. The difference between the Republicans and the Democrats on this, and I think even the difference between the Democrats and Keynes is what they decide to spend the money on. Um, we have always spent enormous sums of money when we get into crises, and we've also spent much larger sums of money since the Great Depression, just as a sort of standard baseline of how the government functions. Before the Great Depression, the government spent two or three percent of GDP uh, on on its operations. You know, since since the 1960s, we've been hovering around 20 percent. You you move a couple percent up, a couple percent down. Um, that is a significant change. I think Keynes would have wanted more of that. Uh, but the fact is, Keynesian thought in this sense of using the government to, to supplement aggregate demand, it is, not, it is not a controversial theory in government between Republicans and Democrats when they're actually governing. It's, ju it's just how the world works. So if you're worried about adopting Keynesian ideas uh, because you think it's going gonna, it's gonna to cause some sort of crisis or, or move the economy out of kilter, you, know, you have to grapple with the last 80 years. Well, I, th I think that's well said, and, and I, I want to take you back to the original gold standard, which we were we lifted in 1933, and then um, uh, John Maynard Keynes himself worked on the Bretton Woods Treaty in 1944. Uh, but then there's August 15, 1971, where Richard Nixon pulls the pin on gold, 
Uh, and there's this theory. Uh, and so I want, I want you to address that. And then the second part of the question is, let's go from 1971 to today, because conservatives would say, well, we took ourselves off the gold standard. We had that rampant inflation in the 70s that needed to be tamed by Volcker. Uh, and, and that these strategies are incredibly inflationary and that deficit spending actually harms the middle class and the lower middle class because if you're devaluing the dollar, their wages can't catch up. So it's a two-part story. Let's, let's go to 33, 44, 71, and then the, that, that last piece there. So Keynes's issue with the gold standard by 1933 is not anything about gold in particular. He just thinks that the economic order of his day is forcing countries into sort of a deflationary crouch. If you are losing gold in, uh, under the gold standard, if it's, if it's flowing out of your country because people are losing confidence in, in either your, your finance, your financial situation, or your economy is just, just not doing well, um, then you have to do something to, to retain gold. So it typically was raising interest rates. That was how, how, how uh, central banks dealt with that. And the gold would flow, would flow back. But by raising interest rates, you caused high unemployment. And there's this famous quote from Keynes in, the, in 1923, where he says, in the long run, we are all dead. And this has been interpreted in various ways you know, by different people throughout time. But the basic point is that if you have a social revolution in the meantime, while you're waiting for the for, you know, for the scales of, of, of the Adam Smith economy to balance eventually, uh, that doesn't help you any. You still have a social revolution and that is a problem. So Keynes says, look, we have to do something. So we have to find some way of managing the economy to prevent these really terrible social outcomes in the short term while we're waiting for the economy to sort of balance. And the long run could be a long time. You know, it, it could be 90 years, it, it could be nine years, but however long it is, if we have a revolution in the meantime, that's gonna be a problem for somebody like Keynes. So in the, in the 1930s, he sees the gold standards, this real transmission mechanism for austerity and for, and for social revolution. As one country sort of has a run on its currency, it, it, it sort of backs down and gets into this crouch and it, it never really works. The deflationary positions never actually, the strategies don't actually prevent the financial crises from, go, from going full bore and from wrecking these currencies. So country after country keeps, uh, you know, keeps going off the gold standard, but they do that as one country has a problem and then investors look, look to other countries and say, well, who's the next weakest thing? I think people who lived through 2008 and saw, saw people looking from bank to bank, you know, from Lehman to Morgan Stanley, that sort of thing, uh, understand that that kind of thinking that happens among investors. So when you go off gold in 1933, there's there's a new sort of world, and it's very chaotic, and it's not particularly uh, it, it's it's not particularly prosperous. I mean, we have the Great Depression, and in 1944, this is the Bretton Woods Conference is sort of the attempt to create a new system among different countries to to cooperate on economic policy, on finance and trade. And, and to create like a new, a new system that is not going to force countries into these sort of deflationary crouches whenever they get into, into trouble. Uh, it sort of works, it sort of doesn't, but in 1971, the United States blows it up. And you know, look, the inflation era of the 1960s and 1970s, there's a reason why people are you know, critical of Keynesian economics at this point in time. Um, there, there's a lot of spending that's happening among governments. Uh, people don't, Keynesians don't have a particularly good explanation for why the inflation is taking off. There's, uh, 
there's the oil price increases, which happens because of a lot of foreign policy decisions in the Middle East. So that's part of it. But inflation really is, it really is taking off and it totally discredits Keynesian thinking in the 1970s. So you know, I don't have a great explanation for why the 1970s inflation happens. Um, I don't have a great, inf great explanation uh, for, for why we don't have any inflation right now, even though people have been calling for it since, uh, you know, calling for hyperinflation since 2006, I think. So I, I think the, the, the sort of um, certainty that the economics profession sort of develops every three or four years as, as new theories kind of take hold uh, is, is often quite illusory. Um, but with Keynes, you have this very flexible mind, somebody who is attached not only to deficit spending, you know, he liked deficit spending because you know, he, he saw it as a political necessity, but he never wanted to be remembered as a deficit therapist. He wanted to be remembered as this guy who was trying to prevent war and deprivation, to, who was trying to promote prosperity and international harmony. And the tactics that he was willing to use, the, the sort of improvisational attitude that he had towards economics, I think is, uh, is an unusual spirit within the profession. He didn't claim to have this deep knowledge about the way the world works on some, you know, deep down in the ether of reality, right? He was, uh, he was someone who, who was willing to change his mind when, when circumstances changed. Well, there's, a, there's an extension of Keynesianism now called modern monetary theory. Uh, your friend uh, Stephanie Kilton will be doing a, a salt talk with us next week on her, on her book, The Deficit Myth. I know you're going to be with her tomorrow. We should publicize that. It'll be tomorrow. Uh, the bookstore Politics and Prose, one of my favorite bookstores, is hosting a podcast with the two of you. And what time is that going to be, Zach? 7 p.m. Eastern time. 7 p.m. Politics and Prose, a uh, phenomenal bookstore in, uh, in, the, in Washington, D.C., but in Stephanie's book, uh, which I read in preparation for this and for my uh, salt talk with her next week, she really believes that this is the Galileo moment. She really believes, I mean, she really says that modern monetary theory is like Copernicus discovering that the earth is actually r rotating around the sun as opposed to being flat and the center of the universe according to some of the religious experts. And so she really believes that this massive sort of deficit spending is a great equalizer and is almost a tonic to help the lower and middle class. And so I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that, you now being the Keynesian expert. Sure. You know, I, I have a great deal of respect for Stephanie. That's why we're doing an event together tomorrow. Um, but, you know, the, the, the big shift that she's talking about is the focus on real resources, the actual productive capacity in the economy. How many people you have who can be put to work, what their skills are, how many resources you have, how many farmers you have, how many miners you have, how many, you know, how many tons of coal you have in the ground, uh, you know, probably not great for, for uh, the Green New Deal kind of stuff, but, but the actual resources you have in your economy, that's how you should think about economic policy. You should not think about it in terms of the monetary numbers that we attach to government spending. So the numbers that we talk about when we talk about debt and deficits and whether or not we can afford things, her point is just that, I mean, I, 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 I don't think I'm putting words into her mouth here because uh, I've talked to her many times, but her point is that, you know, if we have the stuff, if we can actually do it, then we can afford it. The amounts that we have on our, on our ledgers and our accounting books 
you know, those, those may, may not be irrelevant, but they're not important to the question of whether or not we can afford to do something. And I think that's an important point. And frankly, I think it goes all the way back to Keynes. He has this very important essay that comes out in 1941, I believe, maybe 1940, called How to Pay for the War. And it's about how the British government is going to deal with these massive, massive expenses that are going to be required by World War II. And he basically says, look, this is about mobilizing our resources. Every other question that we have is about what kind of society we want to live in after those resources are mobilized. Do we want to, we want to sell debt so that the investor class makes a lot of money and becomes wealthy and gets, you know, gets interest payments hereafter? Or do we want to, do we want to raise taxes on, on the investor class so that they have less money in the here and out? The, the, the point is that these questions end up being about distribution ultimately, that scarcity, that scarcity of resources, which is sort of the, the basic underlying premise of economics, certainly in the, in the Austrian tradition, but, but really throughout much of the, the, the Anglo-Saxon tradition as well, uh, is maybe not the real problem. The real problem may be, may be about distribution. And I think Stephanie is, has really keyed into something important there. And I think that's really, you know, honestly, when, when, the, when the MMT people start talking about sophisticated Federal Reserve operations and the relationship between the Fed and Treasury, they, there, are, there are moments when they lose me. I, I, get, I get lost. It's very technical and complicated. But I think the basic point that, that scarcity is not the key factor and that the monetary numbers about deficits are not what matters, it's real resources in the economy, that, that strikes me as correct and it seems to me to, to flow directly out of John Maynard Keynes. Well, you know, she certainly makes that case in her book, and we'll, we'll address that next week, and I appreciate you bringing it up. I guess uh, what often happens to me, Zach, uh, with clients, I'm out making a presentation, somebody raises their hand and says, hey, are, are you worried about the deficits? Are you worried about the long-term accumulation of deficits? And, you know, again, conservatives, von Mises, others, what, what would they say? They would say, well, the deficits have a tendency to crowd out. You have interest payments on the budget that are going towards those. Uh, and then governments have to monetize that debt in some way. Let's look at our own government for a second. The, in 1971, $35 an ounce for gold. Today, it's $1,700 an ounce for gold. Uh, a conservative economist would make the case that our money was devalued by 98% over that two generational period of time. Totally fine for people that have assets because the assets denominated in dollars, they go up in value. That $1 million beach house is now $10 million. Uh, but again, for people that have wages, and I saw this in the 2016 campaign, uh, when I was campaigning with then-candidate Trump, we had people really struggling. And I remember being on the campaign plan, I did an analysis of what my dad, my dad was a, a, a blue-collar worker, he was a crane operator, he was an hourly worker in a union, and I did the calculation uh, for then Mr. Trump, I looked over and I said, see if my dad in 1976, if he was doing the same job, same union, 2016, his wages are down 26 and a half percent. So uh, it's a broad question, but do deficits matter? Are they going to come back to haunt us? Are they impairing the ability for middle class people to get ahead? Is it hurting their wages? And what do you say about their grandchildren? Well, I think... Uh... Deficits can matter. Um, certainly, if you get if if you if you believe Stephanie, um, there's a certain point at which all of the resources in society are mobilized, and 
there's just there's just nothing more to produce. And so the so at that point you start seeing inflation. And when you start seeing inflation, that's that that can be a, a social problem, not only for the investor class, but for the you know, for, for working people. Um, I don't think we're there. Um, when I think about the question about the grandchildren, though, you know, your grandchildren want you to have a job so that you can have a fulfilling life and pass good things down to them, whether it's money or learning or culture. They want you to be able to have a full life. They're not thinking, my goodness, my grandparents are stealing from me every day. They're thinking, I mean, I just, I have a 10 year old, a 10 month old daughter now. So I think about this all the time. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, you know, what she wants is for daddy to be employed so that daddy can have a job and give, you know, afford to buy her toys and books and teach her things. Um, she wants to have all the ingredients of a good life. This is essential to Keynesian thought. Let me push back. Let me push sure. back for a second though. Are we mortgaging her future? Because uh, that's a big issue, right? That's a big statement that people make. Well, we're mortgaging our children's future to pay for our goods and services today. What happens, what happens to my daughter if I lose my job? What happens to her if I don't have any money, if I can't pay the bills? The idea that we're mortgaging her future to make sure that her parents are employed, I think is very silly. Her future gets much, much worse if her parents are in a terrible financial situation. Oh, oh, okay, so now you sound like John Maynard Keynes and you do make the point in this amazing book. What you're basically saying is that we have to solve for today and that if we can create the right economy today, we get an amazing amount of innovation, an unleashing of growth, and people that think the way I am positing right now are thinking too linearly. In fact, we have this exponential opportunity if we can set the economy up right today uh, and so that the future for your daughter or my children is gonna be so much different. And I would point out to people, just think about where we were in the 80s with peak oil theory. I was sitting in a classroom, Zach, in the mid 80s where people told me, well, we're running out of oil. By 2010, there'll be no oil. And they left out the exponential technological growth that took place, uh, that took place under heavy deficit spending uh, to lead to this abundance of oil. Now we could question a bit that impact on the environment, but the point being, right. I think the point that Keynes would make, you would make, it's a very interesting intellectual comment, is if you fix today, we won't have to worry about tomorrow because we'll unleash unbelievable amounts of growth in the process uh, uh, and make people's lives in the future way better than ours today. Keynes had a very different sort of framework for understanding economics than I think most economists who have followed him have have, have adopted. His his view is that it's not scarcity of resources that dominates our, our condition as human beings. It's uncertainty about the future. And if you can find a way to deal with uncertainty, we, I mean, ultimately, there's there's no way to, to cure uncertainty. But if you can give people a reason to believe that tomorrow will be better than today, each step of the way, you have a much better chance of, of securing the, the type of social harmony that he always wanted to see. And so his economic policy is designed to make people believe that tomorrow will be better than today. And look, that is a difficult thing to secure when things are bad. You know, I know that right now we have, you know, we've got the pandemic, we've got, we've got unrest in pretty much every single American city. Uh, but Keynes lived through this too. You know, he lived through the First World War, the Great Depression, the Second World War. Those were catastrophic things. And he never lost that sort of faith in the future. 
And I think that's a pretty essential sort of belief that you have to maintain if you're going to live in a democracy, regardless of what your economic position is. And so, you know, whether you're an Austrian or a Keynesian, that sort of faith in the ability for people to solve problems collectively, I think is a pretty essential way of, uh, of understanding the world. I think, I think it's very well said. Uh, before I turn it over to John Darcy, I have one more question. Uh, and when I read this in your book, I was like, okay, this is fascinating. I'd like you to explain this to our viewers and listeners. Uh, uh, Keynes really felt that it wasn't normal for human beings to be on a trajectory of peace and prosperity. He felt that they, they needed a political system uh, to help guide that. And it needed, we needed, as a culture and sociologically, mechanisms in the political system to further that. I was wondering if you could elaborate on that and explain that to our viewers. Sure. I mean, one of the lessons of the general theory, it's, it's not just about deficits and debt, as we've been, we've been discussing this entire, in, in, entire event. Um, you know, he thinks that societies kind of, if you don't have political leadership, they kind of tend towards not only, you can call it an equilibrium, but it's a social, socially dysfunctional equilibrium where you have high unemployment. And if you take a step back from the economic language, what he means is there's a lot of social unrest. There is not, uh, you have social breakdown. So you need some sort of political leadership in order to sustain the idea of harmony in, in politics. And he gets this from being a political philosopher, frankly. He's not just a guy who wakes up one day and reads Adam Smith and thinks, okay, let me start, let me start you know, moving some equations around. He's very, very steeped in enlightenment liberalism and in these, these basic ideas of what makes people function, what makes society healthy. And one of the guys he likes a lot is, is Edmund Burke. And, and he thinks Edmund Burke's ideas about social stability are really important. He disagrees with Burke on whether or not democracy is sort of fuel for social instability. He thinks that Burke, you know, maybe, maybe there's something there, but so far he says, uh, you know, democracy has not embarrassed itself on its trial. So he believes that people can come together to solve problems but he does believe that somebody has to do the solving of the problems, and that is political leadership. And without political leadership, you not only have all the social unrest, you, you can't have things like markets. They, they need some sort of political foundation to exist at all. So people can disagree and dispute you know, what, what rules we want to have when we, when we create these markets, but they are fundamentally a product of the state itself. And the state, he has, I mean, there, there's, a, there's a lot to discuss here, but you know, he has a fairly benign view of the state. He sees it as sort of an expression of the democratic will, much like, like the philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau did. Um, so he believes that this is the only way for people to come together and sort of express their beliefs about how they want to be governed is, is, through, is through the government. And he believes that markets and all the economic sort of underpinnings of society that we take for granted are actually sort of sort of byproducts of the state itself. So that means ultimately that, that governance and that intervention in the markets is inevitable. And the question is what kind of interventions we want to have. And people have been disputing that ever since. Well, listen, it's fascinating. And I think, I think it's just a reminder to people, uh, I'll take them back to their eighth grade social studies, uh, Solon who invented democracy in Athens. He basically went to the other aristocrats and said, hey, if we're not careful here, there's gonna be a rebellion and an uprising we need to figure out a way to include all people uh, of economic strata. It was men at that time. Uh, now it's all people in this great, uh, wonderful diversity. Uh, we have to include everybody. And so we have to try to make the system as fair as possible. Otherwise, there'll be just haves and have nots, Zach. We don't want that. 
Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why we're faced with issues of populism and, and nationalism now. But you wrote an amazing book. I want to turn it over to John for uh, some questions from the audience, if you have a, a couple more minutes for us. Uh, but I want to hold the book up again. It's amazing, available on Amazon and other places. I like buying my books from the local bookstore. I just try to help out the community. Uh, but this is a great book, Zach. Uh, John, do you have questions for Zach Carter? Yeah, we have, we have several audience questions. And Zach, thanks again for joining us. Uh, the first one pertains to politics in the United States. You know, the Republican Party has, has sort of become known as the party that's concerned about deficit spending more so than the Democratic Party. We talk about increases in deficit spending being a left-leaning policy. But if you really look historically, a conservative presidents like Nixon, Reagan, and Bush have been the ones that have ballooned U.S. deficits while Clinton was the one who balanced the budget. And President Obama, now in hindsight, it, it appears that his lack of spending uh, post-2008, post the 2008 crisis, constrained the acceleration of the recovery. Could you elaborate on that observation and, and share your view of whether you think the Biden administration, I know uh, Sanders, the Sanders team has Stephanie Kelton on as an uh, economic counselor, but do you think the Biden administration understands that issue and has the appetite to spend aggressively uh, if he wins in, in this election? Well, let me start with the Biden question. Uh, I mean, frankly, I, Biden is is a total black box to me. Uh, I, I think I, I think you know he he sometimes comes out and talks about how he wants to do something like a like an FDR New Deal style uh, program, and the other times he he sounds like he's he's an austerian. I I think Biden's just trying to get through this election, and we're going to learn a lot about what the direction of the Biden administration will be when he names his vice president. Um, that is going to be a sign to people about what kind of administration he really wants to run. I think he's been talking out of sort of both sides of his mouth for, for much of the campaign since, since he basically secured the nomination, you know, trying not to lose a lot of those Sanders supporters, uh, but also trying not to alienate the, the suburban moderates who he feels like are part of his base. And I don't think he knows what he wants to do. I think he's going to figure it out. He's a guy who's capable of changing his mind. You know, he voted for all of this uh, bank deregulation stuff in the 1990s as part of the Clinton administration, was very enthusiastic about it. But in 2016, when uh, when he was looking back on his career in politics, he said to, I believe it was Jake, Jake Tapper, that he thought his vote for uh, for the repeal of Glass-Steagall was the worst vote he ever made. So he's capable of changing his mind. Uh, I just don't know, you know, which way he's going to change it going forward. And I think predicting the future is is an extremely difficult thing to do in in politics at this at this juncture. This is a very very uncertain time. Um, about Republicans and Democrats and deficits. I mean, what you said is basically right. Um, everybody, with the exception of Bill Clinton, since uh, since 1932 has been running up larger and larger deficits. It's just sort of a fact of life. Um, whether or not those deficits are, are good for America, you know, the thing about economic disputes is you can always find statistics to fit your particular worldview. You know, the empirical questions, they're very difficult to decipher. So, you know, some people could say, look, the deficits caused inflation in the 1970s, they caused a recession in 1992. Uh, other people, you know, I tend not to find that stuff terribly persuasive, but, you know, I can point to a, di a different set of data that says, you know, deficits don't don't really make that big of a difference for, for the United States, particularly since the age of gold is over. Um, 
you know, I do think it's the case that the Democratic Party is more committed to um, what we would traditionally call fiscal responsibility um, than the Republican Party is. They, they seem to think that it's sort of like a point of honor to reduce the deficit in ways that the Republicans don't when they're in power. I think Nancy Pelosi has been very clear about this. Um, I'm not particularly excited about that as somebody who's traditionally been affiliated with the Democratic Party. I, I wish they weren't so committed to deficit reduction. I think it ultimately ends up hurting the people who they want to help. Uh, but, uh, but you know, we, we will see what happens in the Biden administration. I think it's a very uncertain time. And I think ideologically, everything is scrambled right now. You know, the Republican Party, there are people, there are voices in the Republican Party right now who are talking about running big deficits to help working families. Uh, that was not happening a few years ago. And, and we'll just, we'll just see what happens. The next question uh, came from the chat. It's, it's about whether there seems to be a resurgent interest in the ideas of people like Keynes and Carl Polanyi. Is that a sign that, a sign that our ideas about free markets and how they work is fundamentally changing? I, I do think so. I mean, I think 2008 was a really big moment intellectually in the history of, of ideas for not only the United States, but the Western world more broadly. Uh, this idea that markets were self-correcting things, that, that supply was going to balance with demand and, and reach a prosperous equilibrium, I mean, it just, you, you got to account for what happened in 2008. It was a total disaster. And I think, I think the, uh, the criticisms of the Obama administration that followed that they were not aggressive enough in responding to that sort of suggests that that the government needs to be involved in the management of the economy, whatever you do. So the idea of the free market is something that's separate from the government rather than something that is managed by the government or interacts with the government in some way. I think that is that is that is changing. We, we do not really accept the sort of Milton Friedman idea that um, that there's a free market that exists out there in sort of the state of nature and the government moves in after the fact and sort of intervenes across it. I think that has changed, but it doesn't necessarily just accepting that difference doesn't actually help you decide what the policies are that need to be made uh, in 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 that reality. So, you know, people like me who are con deeply concerned about economic inequality are going to say, going to advise, you know, a different set of policies than people who are concerned about other factors. But that gets us to a basic political struggle. It's not necessarily, you know, you can't just say, look, the equations add up this way. This is what the numbers say. You have to actually start talking about values and beliefs. And that is what democracy is for. I have one final thought as I plug your book one more time. Zach's book is The Price of Peace, Money, Democracy, and the Life of John Maynard Keynes. I had a chance to read it as well. It's fantastic. What's your next book going to be about, Zach? <laughs> I have got to keep that under wraps. I am talking with uh, with my publisher right now, and uh, we have we have exciting things on the way. But that's well, all. We, I can well, say. we we cause you to blush on our uh, our Salt Dog webinar. You could be the first blusher, Zach. I caught the redness in your face there. <laughs> I, uh, right. I blush easily, Anthony. <laughs> All right. Well, that, that's good for me to know because I'm not the type to ever embarrass people. So, you know, I'll, I'll keep that on the down low, Zach. But in, in any event, I, I appreciate it. Any uh, parting thoughts of wisdom that you would like to share with us before we sign off? Sure. You know, uh, look, I think Keynes was deeply naive in a lot of ways. I think he made a lot of bad mistakes politically. He's you know, kind of a goofball throughout his life. But I, I think his, his, his faith in our ability to solve our problems together 
as a society, I think is a faith that we cannot afford to lose. That is an essential belief. Whatever your political perspective is, whether you call yourself a conservative or a left-wing socialist or whatever, you have to believe that we can deal with the problems that are facing us. Because if you stop believing in that, you end up with, with a future that's far worse than it needs to be. And, uh, and, and I think that's, that, that was a very wise and difficult thing for, for Keynes to maintain throughout his life. But I think it's, it's very admirable. Well, 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 don't knock being a political goofball or being naive, Zach. Some, some of us may be that. Some of us even on this salt talk may be political goofballs. But in any event, we appreciate your time. Uh, it was a phenomenal book. Uh, I really recommend everybody. I, I do believe, as we were talking about before, we opened up the line to others. The Lords of Finance, uh, written by Liaquat Ahmed uh, 10 or 11 years ago, had great influence on people like Dr. Bernanke, and it became sort of the, to use the metaphor, because it's appropriate, the gold standard uh, contemporary book for that moment. I do believe your book is going to be that one uh, for today. So congratulations, Zach. I uh, wish you the best with the book, and uh, hopefully we'll get you to our SAW conference uh, when we can get it back up and running. Thank Looking you again. forward to it.